Welcome each one to our service this evening, to those visiting with us, we especially welcome you, and we trust that the Lord will indeed meet with us and speak to us through his word as we worship together tonight. And we're going to turn in our hymnals to the Psalm 90b, the Psalm 90b, Lord, thou hast been a dwelling place, a rest in tribulations, to us thine own redeemed race through all our generations. The Psalm 90b, and we'll stand as we worship our God this evening. seated. We're going to turn in the Word of God to uh, Philippians uh, chapter 3. I'm not sure how familiar that tune was uh, to you. It wasn't so familiar to me, um, but it was, it was played well, and uh, it's maybe another tune uh, that we can get used uh, to singing in the future as well. Uh, great words, and certainly uh, we can uh, praise the Lord, and perhaps uh, we'll 
know it a little better, or I'll know it a little better in the future. Philippians chapter 3, we'll commence reading at verse 1. And the Word of God says, the Apostle is speaking, the Apostle Paul, My brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Amen. We'll end there, verse 11, trusting the Lord's blessing upon the reading, and that reading, as we have read it, reminds us of the Apostle Paul and what he said concerning himself the great attributes and characteristics of his person. And he could claim these things, great things, great things concerning his heritage. Uh, but yet, all these things, uh, he accounted loss for Christ. Christ was the important thing, the necessary thing that he needed, uh, Christ and his salvation. We can have religion uh, we can have our own idea of what is right in this world, uh, but yet ultimately the question is, do you have Christ? Do you know the Savior? Uh, for He is the one whom we must turn to uh, for everlasting life. Let us seek the Lord and unite together in prayer and ask the Lord's blessing uh, to be upon His Word uh, tonight. Let us pray. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, we rejoice this evening that we can look unto thee. Uh, we thank thee we can sing thy praises. Uh, we rejoice, O oh God, that we can uh, lift our voices to thee and uh, sing uh, the praises of the one who created this world and who sent his Son to be the Savior of sinners. And tonight, O oh God, we rejoice that we can look to thee. Uh, we rejoice that we do not come to meet in our own strength, but we look to Thee and to Thy Spirit for Him to come and for Him to minister and apply Thy Word to every heart. Father, we are a needy people. We are needy of Thy Word. We are needy of hearing the truth of God 
uh, being applied to our souls by thy Spirit. And Lord, we look to thee that uh, thou would teach us and thou would instruct us. We think of those outside of Christ who have never cast their anchor upon the Savior, who are out of Christ uh, with no Savior. And we pray for them that uh, tonight they would meet the Savior. Tonight they would know uh, with that great assurance in their hearts that their sins are forgiven and that there is peace between them and thee. And Father, tonight we thank thee for the peace and for the satisfaction and the assurance that is found in the gospel of Christ. Uh, we thank thee, O God, that uh, there is a real and a genuine peace and that there is that real and genuine assurance uh, because as we turn to thy word, we see the certainty of salvation. When Paul said to that Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, the great apostle did not hesitate. He did not, uh, as it were, uh, bring any shadow of any doubt into what he was saying. He spoke the truth. He spoke what he knew to be true. He spoke what he knew the Scriptures would teach. And he told this individual all that he simply had to do to know the forgiveness of sins and how to be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And Father, tonight as we turn to thy word afresh, we pray for thy blessing upon it. We pray that thy word would go forth and that thou would be pleased to Bless it, may it have free course and be glorified. We think of the preaching of thy word across Canada tonight. We think, O oh God, of our own province and even here in Western Canada, our sister, our sister congregations. Bless them, we pray. And as thy word is preached there, and may thy the outpouring of thy spirit and thy blessing be upon them. Father, we thank thee. Uh, for those uh, who are colleagues to us, those who are sister congregations, those who serve the Lord in their respective places alongside us. And we pray that thou would bless them and use them. And may they know a great harvest as they seek to labor for thee. We do remember our missionaries tonight. We remember the Reverend Decanio in Liberia. Uh, we remember that work. Uh, we think, Father, of the work in Jamaica and there in Mexico as well, we rejoice in the news that uh, the Mexico City congregation have uh, elected elders, and in due course, they will be ordained uh, to that office. We pray that that work would grow, uh, that it would continue to know thy blessing. Uh, we do remember uh, the work in Cordoba as well, and uh, we pray that thou would bless there uh, as uh, our brother uh, ministers thy word. And Father, elsewhere we pray. We remember our churches in the United States. We remember, Father, the uh, work there in Korea also, in South Korea. Uh, bless there, we pray. Uh, we thank Thee for the remembrance of that work and the missionary presentation at the end of last year. And we pray that uh, Thou would be pleased to uh, meet their needs and that that work would grow and strengthen in the days that lie ahead. Father, bless us here. May we know thy strengthening power. And may we know uh, Christ building his church. And Father, may we know uh, souls being saved from the depths of sin and depravity uh, through the power of the gospel of Christ. 
Father, come and bless us this evening and meet our needs. And may we look to Thee continually, knowing that we can cast our curse upon Thee. For Thou, O God, careth for us. We do think of our community in which we live and the need for the gospel of Christ. And we pray that we would be that shining light to them. Uh, that Thou would be pleased to bless our endeavors in the gospel uh, through the radio, uh, through uh, other means as well, through contact one with another, uh, that as Thy Word is proclaimed, uh, that Thou would indeed bless it. Father, meet with us this evening. Close us in with Thyself. Minister to our souls and do us good. And may we leave this place rejoicing uh, because we know and we have experienced Thy blessing and the presence of thy Spirit here tonight. Bless us and do us good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Going to turn in our hymnals again, the hymn 636. 636. When my life work is ended, and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see. In the hymn 636, we'll stand again as we sing.
seated. We're going to turn in the Word of God tonight to the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, and chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, and if you know the book of Acts, you'll know that in this chapter is one of the greatest conversions in the history of Christianity. Uh, Saul, the persecutor, uh, became uh, Paul, the saint, and Paul, the preacher, uh, Paul, the missionary, uh, Paul, the great encourager, and the planter of churches. And what a change was wrought in his life. And it is this uh, testimony uh, that we're going to consider something of this evening. And so we'll read uh, some of these verses, uh, commencing at verse 1. And let us hear and give due attention and diligence to the Word of God this evening. Acts 9 and the verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went on to the high priest, desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Street, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And had seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately 
there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose, and was baptized. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his precious and infallible word this evening. This point can we extend again a one word of welcome to each one, uh, to those who regularly join us, to those who are visiting, uh, those watching online. We welcome each one and we trust the Lord's blessing to be upon us as we worship his name and hear his precious word uh, tonight. Do you remember the meetings throughout this week, tomorrow night, uh, commencing at 6 p.m.? We have our uh, session and board meetings, and then on Wednesday at 7.30 p.m., our Bible study and prayer meeting, and then uh, next Lord's Day, uh, we have the Sunday School for Children downstairs, the adults upstairs at 9.30 a.m., morning worship at 10.30 a.m., the prayer meeting at 5.30, and then evening worship again at 6 p.m., Next Lord's Day after the evening service, around 7.20 p.m., we have a baptismal service, and our young brother Cole is being baptized, and there'll be food and fellowship afterwards. There's maybe a few other things that will be considered and finalized this week for that service, but we will keep you informed regarding that. And so do remember that service, and do plan to come to the evening service next week and stay on and uh, have that time at the baptism and then food and fellowship uh, afterwards. Now, do remember on Friday the 29th of March we have our Good Friday service. It is uh, followed by food. It is at 4 p.m. and then we'll close around 5 p.m., have some food and fellowship downstairs. It's a great opportunity to invite friends and family into the house of God as we remember the death of our Savior and remember his crucifixion. Uh, there will be invitations available. They're in the meal system somewhere, uh, coming from Ontario, and they're due this week. Uh, so maybe there's somewhere around Manitoba uh, or Alberta at this point in time, but they'll be here. And uh, we encourage you to take the invitations. They'll be available next Sunday, God willing. And we encourage you to take them, pass them to friends and family, and invite them into the house of God uh, during that Easter weekend. And uh, we trust the Lord would bless. The invitation will be available on Facebook as well. There's a QR code in the bulletin that takes you to the Facebook page. And so sometime tonight, tomorrow, uh, that invitation will be posted on Facebook as well. Uh, so you can click on it, share it, and all of your many friends and acquaintances uh, can see uh, the invite as well. And so we encourage you to do that and uh, make that known uh, so uh, that others will hear uh, that there is a service here and they'll come and hear uh, the word of God. These are all uh, the announcements and they're subject to the will of God. There are a number of other things in the bulletin that are uh, in a week or two's time, so we'll leave them there. Uh, but we'll turn in our hymnals uh, to our offering hymn, hymn number 561. 161, living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please him in all that I do. 561, we'll remain seated while our tithes, our offerings for the Lord's work are collected.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege we have to uh, sit under the preaching of your word tonight. We pray, Lord, that you bless each part of the service tonight, including these tithes and these offerings. We pray, dear God, that you bless it to, uh, to be used for your namesake and for your glory's sake. Be with us now, Lord, as we listen to your word and help our pastor to deliver the message tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's change our positions and stand for the remainder of this hymn, please.
seated. We're going to turn again in the Word of God to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And I want to draw your attention from verse 3 down to the end of verse number 6. The Word of God says, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word tonight. Let us settle our hearts. And let us come and seek the Lord in prayer, asking for his blessing uh, to be upon the preaching of his precious word uh, tonight. Let us pray. Our eternal God and our loving Father in heaven, we rejoice tonight that we can be found in thy presence, uh, that we can hear thy word, that we can sing the great hymns of Zion. And our Father, as we look to thee tonight, we pray that thou would bless thy word that thou would use the preaching of thy truth to change our lives, to speak to those who are lost in their sins. Lord, to build up and to edify the saints of God, to restore those who are cold at heart. We thank thee that the Word of God is a book of life, a book that speaks to our hearts today. And, O oh God, we cry to thee that thou would speak to our hearts this night, through thy precious word, uh, that we would know the blessing uh, that comes from thee this night. Lord, apply thy word to our hearts. May we understand more and more of thy glorious gospel. And Father, may we glorify thee uh, for the great and wondrous things that thou hast accomplished for us. Bless us, do us good, help us to listen, we pray. Take away every distraction and glorify thy name, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. John Newton, the great hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, was in his unsaved days a most wicked and sinful man. However, on his tomb is written the following description. John Newton, once an infidel, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. And immediately we are thinking, well, what changed that man? What is his testimony? How did he move from being a servant of slavers in Africa, being an infidel, to preaching the glorious gospel of Christ? of being able to write those great words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What happened in his life? And very soon he met the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ stepped into his life and saved him and redeemed him. 
Now, it was nothing to do with John Newton himself, but it was all of Christ. And as individuals, we enjoy to listen to the fascinating accounts of how men and women came to know Christ as their own impersonal Savior. And in the Word of God, perhaps is no more thrilling account than that of Saul of Tarsus. We find here in Acts chapter 9 one of the most remarkable conversions to Christ in the history of the church, and a conversion that will forever have a lasting impact upon this world. The Apostle Paul was one of the great figureheads of the New Testament church. His missionary journeys led to the formation and edification of many churches in the early days of Christianity, and his writings form perhaps the bulk of the New Testament scriptures. His service for God has been quoted as shaping the history of the world. Such was his importance in the progression of the church of Christ. He firmly rooted Christian theology in the righteousness of Christ and helped to establish it against the great errors of his day, and namely the danger of falling back into Judaism. I want you to consider how he was used by God, converted and commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. One commentator said that there are men whose lives it is impossible to study without receiving the impression that they were expressly sent into the world to do a work required by the juncture of history on which they fell. This impression is produced by no life more than that, more than by that of this apostle, the apostle Paul. And when it was time in the gracious plan of God to proclaim the gospel through the ancient world, moving on from Judea and Samaria into the othermost parts of the world, the apostle Paul was that special instrument used by God and chosen by God to lead the way in world missions. He was a most unlikely choice when we come to Acts 9, who is this Saul of Tarsus, who would later be referred to as Paul the apostle. He was a persecutor. He was a zealous Jew. He was a man who hated the name of Christ, who hated the people of God, who hated the gospel of Christ. And it says in verse 1, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. Could this man be saved, humanly speaking? Perhaps we would wonder that if we were there in the church at that time. Ananias wondered. When the Lord said, go speak to Saul, he said, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. He had a reputation. He was a most unlikely choice in the service of God because of what he did to the church. Yet God was sovereign. His missionary journeys are legendary in missionary endeavor. They show the principles and inspiration for all missionary work to follow. His mystery work made him prominent in the scriptures. He was a religious man in his unsaved days, a man full of zeal for his cause, but far from the God he professed to serve. And we find a man filled with hatred toward Christ, present at the martyrdom of Stephen, a man who entered into homes and committed faithful Christian men to prison. There was no mercy no grace found within him 
And this is the man that we have before us tonight, a man whose heart was dark in sin, a man who committed great acts against the church of Christ. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, the apostle said that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, the greatest sinner. He said in his estimation, because of what he had done, despite his religion, despite his religious zeal, he knew that all sinners deserve the wrath of God for all eternity because of their corruption and their sin. But he was saved by the grace of God. And we have a testimony here that glorifies God. When we testify of what Christ has done in our lives, that testimony should not glorify our sin. It should not glorify the wickedness in the days prior to conversion. I've heard many testimonies that have focused upon sin and churches would be packed because this testimony is the testimony of a man who perhaps has been saved out of the depths of sin. And most of the testimony is about the great sinful deeds that took place. While that is true, we must remember from whence we came Surely a testimony is more about the great change Christ has made rather than the depths of sin. Yes, we should remember who we once were. Ephesians chapter 2, the Ephesians were reminded of that. But the focus is only for a moment upon their past life. And the apostle says, verse 4 of that chapter, Ephesians 2, but God. God made the change. And the rest of the chapter is all about what Christ had done, what the Lord had done for them. A testimony should glorify the God of heaven. Why? Because he is sovereign in salvation. He is in control of salvation. He is the God who saves. Paul was not saved. He did not convert himself to Christ. He hated Christ. He was on a mission to attack the church of Christ. Oh, he had no intention of turning to that very Savior. He had no intention of bowing the knee and confessing him as his Lord and his Master and his King. What happened? God sovereignly came and moved in his life and saved him and redeemed him. It was all of God. And that's what I want us to consider this evening. The sovereignty of God in salvation. The sovereignty of God in salvation. Notice that God efficaciously saves the sinner. God efficaciously saves the sinner. What does that mean? God is efficacious in salvation. He is effective in salvation. He is one who has that purpose in salvation to save the sinner it is something that is accomplished. He will not fail. He will not fail. This evening, when we think of that, I remember a time when I took a sip of water in the pulpit. It didn't go too well. And the water ended up being poured down my tie and my shirt uh, because like just now I took a sip in the middle of preaching and I was engrossed in the message I was preaching the message I paused for a second and I lost track of where my hand was where the glass was and where my mouth is 
and that didn't go too well. It wasn't very effective. It wasn't really efficacious. Uh, tonight, there a moment ago, it was different. And when we think of that, and of course, I had to then preach and try and keep a straight face uh, while others were smiling because they realized what had happened. But when we think of God efficaciously saving the sinner, it is all of God. It is something that he alone can do. He saves, and it is his work. And it is not the work of man. And despite man, and despite man's depravity, he saves the sinner. This is what we're speaking about tonight. Man cannot save himself because of his depravity. And therefore, instead of man stepping in to save himself, God steps in and saves man. And he saves man efficaciously through the glorious gospel. Let us consider for a moment the great sins of the Apostle Paul. Breathing out threatenings and slaughter. He persecuted the church of Christ. He was involved in much wickedness against Christ as he sought to attack the gospel and the people of God. But his trespasses against the church had a source. The heart that is deceitful and wicked above all things. And in order to fully understand salvation and to have a right view of salvation, to understand how God delivers us, we must begin at sin and depravity. We must begin at sin and depravity. If we have a wrong view of that, then that will impact our view of salvation. If I give you directions to my house this evening, I could tell you to go out of the parking lot and turn right. And then I could tell you to turn right again. And then I could tell you to turn left at the end of that street and keep on going till you reach a certain street and then turn right. And when you reach a certain avenue, turn left. And then immediately turn right again and we're there on the right somewhere. The problem is the starting point for those directions is Superstore. It's not the church car park. And so immediately you're lost if you follow those directions. And I don't know where you'll end up. Maybe you should try it. I don't know where you would end up. Because the starting place was very different in my mind as to what you thought you were being told. And if we want to understand salvation and arrive at that understanding of salvation, we must start at the right place. And that is sin. And that is depravity. And if we have a wrong view of sin and depravity, that will impact our view of salvation. And what is depravity? We speak of total depravity. The fall of man affecting every aspect of man. The corruption from the fall extending to every part of man's nature. To all the faculties of body and soul. And there is no spiritual good in relation to God in the sinner at all. We're reminded of that, Romans 3. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We mentioned that this morning and at uh, the Langley Lodge home. There is no good. Man is sinful and man is wicked in his heart. He might be able to engage in some good. He might be able to help those who are in need. But yet every part of his being is affected by sin. 
But if we think the man is not as wicked and not as depraved as the Scriptures teach, then the salvation that is needed is not a salvation that has its complete origin in God alone. For if there is some good in man, that changes things. If there is some good within you, then maybe you could work at that. Maybe you could save yourself. But the reality is there is no good within you. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And therefore, man is totally depraved in every aspect of his being. He cannot save himself. He cannot atone for his own sin. He needs someone to take his place. When we think of the Savior, he is the one who took our place. He's the one who redeemed us because we could not save ourselves. When we think of our sin, it was passed down from Adam. If we turn to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, that very familiar verse, we, and we see what the apostle is teaching here. This man who was converted in Acts 9 is now teaching the church, and he says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, speaking of Adam, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The command came from the Lord, Do not eat the fruit of this tree. And what did our first parents do? They disobeyed the command of God. Many have said that that fruit in the garden, well, was it an apple? It's often depicted as an apple. Answers in Genesis, the uh, creation uh, organization, uh, often put it in their illustrations over the years as a hand grenade, something explosive, something that had that explosive effect throughout history rather than it being an apple or a pear or a lemon or whatever it might be. They show it as a hand grenade. And that is something we need to take seriously. God says, sin entered into the world through Adam. And that is passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And therefore, when we consider depravity, the apostle here is depraved in his unsaved condition. He is religious, yes. He thinks he's serving God, yes. But his heart is dark with sin. And there is a need of salvation because of Adam's sin. This sin left him spiritually helpless. He could not do anything to save himself. His religious acts could do nothing. He needed Christ. He needed Christ. He was found on the road to hell despite his religion. How many are like that? You have your faith. And you have your religion. And you have your idea about God and who God saves and how God saves that's not what God says. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But you have your own idea. And the apostle had his own idea. He had his system. And he still needed to meet Christ. In Philippians 3, he spoke about these great things of his heritage. Today, it would be like saying that you come from a Christian family. And you've heard the Christian gospel. And you know it well. And... Uh, you've sought to live for the Lord and to engage in some spiritual activity and spiritual service and to show some commitment to the church of Christ. But you've never shown commitment to Christ as your Savior. You've never trusted in Him despite that great heritage. You don't know Christ. Paul was exactly like that. His zeal led to murder and persecution and sin, Yes. But the zeal was there. And you could have zeal expressed in different ways, but know nothing 
know nothing of Christ and his salvation. John Calvin spoke about depravity, and he said, until God has worked in us by his grace, then whose are we? Who do we belong to? He said, we belong to the devil. He is our prince. Christ cannot be our prince. The devil is our prince. Because we're spiritually darkened, we're spiritually depraved, but yet the Lord can efficaciously, effectively, completely, sufficiently save us and redeem us. Saul could not do anything here because of his sin. He was spiritually dead in Ephesians 2. He explains it. And ye, ye who have been quickened, ye who are dead in trespasses and sins, ye who had no life, and he's speaking about those who are dead spiritually. And when we think of a corpse, a corpse has no life. A corpse cannot suddenly stand up and continue living in life. That's not going to happen. A corpse will never come to life. A corpse is dead. And Paul is saying there are Ephesians 2 that those who are outside of Christ, those who are in their sins, those who've been affected by Adam's sin, all of us, those believers in Ephesus who had trusted Christ but had been in sin, they were spiritually dead. They could not save themselves. And Paul knew because he was exactly the same, spiritually dead, and he could not save himself. Just as a corpse cannot suddenly jump into life once again. He needed Christ. And tonight, you need to understand, if you know not Christ as Savior, that you're spiritually dead. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. Coming to this service tonight, unless you hear the gospel and repent and trust Christ, simply being here is not enough. It's not enough to save you. It's not enough to earn you favor with God, lest you listen and repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice here, secondly, that God alone saves the sinner. God alone saves the sinner. We see this in Jonah 2, verse 9, where it says, salvation is of the Lord. And this builds upon what we have just said, that Saul could not save himself. And in Acts 9, there is an outworking of that truth that God alone saves the sinner. And God clearly works within this man's life. Imagine the scene. A group of men travel from Damascus or from Jerusalem to Damascus on an important duty in their estimation, traveling at midday. We see that in Acts chapter 26. And suddenly there was a light, light that appeared in the sky. The sun was bright in the sky, but there's another light that outshone the sun and the Lord's presence was made known in a miraculous way. Matthew Henry said how suddenly and strangely a blessed change was wrought in him, not in the use of any ordinary means, but by miracles. The conversion of Paul is one of the wonders of the church. And the Lord revealed himself to Paul, to Saul. We see that verse 9. Verse 4, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. 
This meaning shows us it was the Lord who revealed himself. And when we think of salvation, does the Lord not reveal himself? Does the Lord not show us who he is? Does he not reveal himself to us through his word? This is a miraculous conversion. You're not going to drive down the street and suddenly see a bright light in the sense that Paul saw that. The Lord saved him in a miraculous way, but the Lord revealed himself. And the salvation of the soul is obtained only through Christ revealing himself to the sinner. If Christ had not revealed himself, Paul would have continued in his sin. We see here the light, this light that shone from heaven. It was a sudden light, a light that appeared suddenly. It was a light that came from heaven. And there in heaven, there is the fountain of light, God the Father, the Father of lights. What does the light do? The light shines forth. It reminds us of the power of the gospel, the power of the spiritual light, the power of Christ to shine forth into the world and to shine forth light into your soul. The devil comes to the soul in darkness, but Christ comes in light and shows forth his glorious light. He is, as he said, I am the light of the world. And so we have Saul. We have him falling to his feet, being humbled in the presence of the Lord. We have the Lord's message to him. The Lord knew who he was. The Lord, had know, know, the Lord knew who, or knew all that he had done, verse 5. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And that charge was led to his account. And the Savior says, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He's being guided, goaded, as we saw not so long ago. The gold being used, but he was kicking against it. And the Lord revealed himself. And the charge was led to his account, persecution of Christ persecution of the people of Christ. And when the people of Christ are persecuted, it is Christ who is persecuted. Saul did not lay a finger on the Savior physically, but he laid a finger on the people of Christ. And Christ said, you're persecuting me. You're persecuting me. Dear believer, when we suffer for Christ, it's against Christ. It's not against us. We are suffering for our Savior. But that charge was laid to his account. A charge of sin. Sin must be realized. It must be recognized before conversion takes place. What is salvation? It involves repentance. And what is repentance? It's a turning from sin. It's not a simple saying, I'm sorry for my sin, but it's a turning from sin. It's a turning from sin. It is a U-turn. A sudden U-turn that takes place in the life of a sinner. They're going one way towards sin and toward all the lusts and pleasures of the flesh. And because of Christ and the power of his gospel and his sovereignty and salvation, there is this change of direction. A change of direction that leads them away from sin and toward the God of heaven. Paul had a respectful tone here. He said, Who art thou, Lord? He had been a blasphemer of Christ's name. He had been a persecutor. But now he speaks and uses that phrase, Lord. There's respect here. 
But that respect isn't enough to see them. Christ revealed himself. Christ rebuked him. Christ sought to guide him. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And we find in verse 3 that they were near Damascus. The Christians in that city were about to face the wrath of Saul, but the Lord stepped in. He had his time. And God stepped in at the right time. God alone saves. God alone redeems. And tonight, if you're outside of Christ, remember that. That only Christ himself can save you. You can't. You can't change your direction. This account reminds us of the sovereignty of God in salvation. It reminds us as well, thirdly, that God truly saves the sinner. God truly saves the sinner. This was a genuine work of grace. Dear sinner, tonight, how can you truly be saved? It is off the Lord and not yourself. One of the Puritans said, The devil has many counterfeits of conversion and cheats one with this and another with that. But there is a real conversion here. And the Word of God reminds us of what a real conversion is. And it is not merely taking upon us the profession of Christianity. It is not merely saying, Yes, I'm a Christian. But it is believing upon Christ and living for Christ and putting Christ first within your life. There is this turning from sin. If you read about Saul of Tarsus later on in Acts chapter 9 and 10 and moving through the book of Acts, what do you find? You find the missionary Paul who served the Lord and planted churches and preached the gospel of Christ and suffered for the sake of Christ. It's the same person. He went from being the persecutor to being the persecuted for Christ. It's a great change took place that can only be accredited to the power of the gospel of Christ. There are many within the church who lived great sinful lives before they met the Savior. Their lives have been turned around. And they are clear evidences that the salvation of the Lord is a genuine thing. It is a true thing. Paul hated his former life. He declared he was a great sinner. He turned from sin. He turned from Satan. He turned from the world to live, to, to live unto Christ. A real conversion. Dear believer, as a church of Christ, do we not desire real conversions? There are many who will push individuals. They will push children into professing faith. They will say, oh, we had a gospel campaign and so many people, 30, 40 were saved, hundreds were saved. There was a study done some time ago regarding churches in America. And if I remember rightly, this research considered all the great gospel campaigns in particular areas and the souls that had been saved and recorded as being saved. But the membership of churches and the attendance of local churches did not correlate with those that were being saved. Something was amiss. People were professing Christ, but they were going back into the world and going back into sin and not going anywhere near the church of Christ. It was only words. Mere words will not save you. It is a work of the heart. 
The Lord alone is sovereign, and he works within the heart, and there is a need for that genuine conversion. And dear believer, let us be encouraged that we preach a Christ who truly saves, a Christ who truly redeems his people from their sins. Let us pray to that end. Let us evangelize to that end, that we know Christ saves. We know he saves genuinely. Tonight, dear unbeliever, Christ can save you genuinely. There's no need of doubt, no need of a lack of assurance, because he has promised that those who call upon his name shall be saved. And then fourthly and finally, I want you to quickly see that God purposefully saves the sinner. God purposefully saves the sinner. Verse 16, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my namesake. We could say much more there, but my verse is sufficient to tell us that the Lord had a great plan for Saul of Tarshish, the Apostle Paul. We know that. We know that. The mystery to the Gentiles. And the point is here that the Lord has a purpose in the salvation of his elect people. Saul was converted for a purpose, to be the witness of Christ to the Gentile world. And God purposefully saves. And as the church of Christ, let us pray that God would save individuals, that he would save sinners, that he would save men that would be leaders within the church, deacons and elders and pastors across the church of Christ, men who are not ashamed, that he would save women who can support the church and help the church and help the men as well and to fulfill their godly duty within the church of Christ. They receive boys and girls and teenagers who will go out and reach out with the gospel of Christ. Oh, let us pray that such things were, would happen. Saul was saved for a purpose. Dear believer, what is your purpose as a Christian? What is your purpose as a Christian? What is your purpose as a witness of Christ? What is your purpose to take that name Christian and explain it in its simplest terms? What is your purpose as Christ's one, as belonging to Christ? What is your purpose? To glorify God? Yes. But are you content to sit around with the gospel, content to attend church maybe now and again, or are you desirous to live out and out for Christ, to witness for him? Wherever he has placed you to be that shining light for the Savior. Paul had a great purpose as a believer, and he wholeheartedly lived for the Lord. He wholeheartedly lived for the Lord. Christ was first. Christ was preeminent. The Lord had a purpose for him. He knew it. And he followed the will of God. Dear believer, what is your purpose tonight? To glorify God, yes. To serve him in the local church, yes. But are you fulfilling all of his purpose? Are you being the witness that you can be? And serving the Lord where he has placed you? Maybe he has a work for you to do. And you're saying, no, I can't do that. Seek him. Seek his purpose. The Apostle Paul had a difficult work to do, but he did it cheerfully unto the Lord. And the great spread of the gospel through the ancient world and into Europe 
was largely through his endeavors and his labors. The Lord is sovereign in salvation. And tonight, dear unconverted, the Lord conceive you genuinely and truly for a purpose to glorify him. As we close, let us think upon Saul of Tarsus, a man who hated Christ, a man whose life was changed around. Let us think of those in society who hate Christ. Let us think of those in political circles and within the government, and it's very clear they hate Christ. Let us think of others within society that we might know, and they hate Christ. Is the Lord incapable of saving them? Is the Lord incapable of redeeming their hearts, of saving their souls? He saved Saul of Tarsus. Let us pray. Let us pray for those in authority that they would be saved like Saul of Tarsus. Let us pray for those who rage against the church of Christ like Saul, that they would be saved like Saul of Tarsus. Let us pray that the Lord would be pleased to move in this way in our land and in our nation to the glory of his name, for he alone is sovereign in salvation. Let us rest upon him as the church. Let us preach, let us teach, let us spread the name of Christ, but let us remember it is God who saves, not us. It is God who saves. Let us look to him and depend upon him for his so great salvation. Amen. May the Lord bless uh, the preaching of his word uh, to our souls tonight. We're going to turn in closing to the hymn 658. The hymn 658. Who, who are these beside the chilly wave, just on the borders of the silent grave, shouting Jesus' power to save, washed in the blood of the Lamb. 658, we'll stand as we sing, please.
Let us pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you for thy word tonight. We pray that it would live on in precious hearts, that thou would speak to those outside of Christ. Draw them to thyself, glorify thy name, and we thank thee that thou art sovereign in salvation. That salvation is of the Lord. Father, bless us. Part us with thy blessing. Be with us this week. And may the love of God, our Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the sweet fellowship and communion of God, the Holy Spirit, be with us all. Amen.